John mentioned, um, we're in a series that's taking us through the New Testament book of, of Colossians. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in, in chapter 3, and uh, it's a text that is really packed with a lot of truth, but it's also coupled with a very clear application. Uh, I was talking to Brad Zook this week, and he's one of the guys on our staff, and, and he said to me with a lot of excitement, he said, man, I, just, I love the, the text that you get to preach this weekend, and he was in my office giving me some different resources to help my preparation, and and he said, this text is one of my favorites. He said, it's the most powerful, one of the most powerful texts in all of Scripture. And uh, I tell you what, after I've studied this week, I couldn't agree more. Um, and what excites me about this text and what excites me for us this morning is this. I think of promises. I think of, of words like from Isaiah 55.1 where it says that, that God's word, when it goes out, it, it doesn't return empty. But when God's word goes out and when people hear it and their hearts are open, it accomplishes what God wanted it to accomplish. And uh, so this morning, before we dive in, I want to just ask you, would you join me and let's just go to the Lord and let's just say, Lord, we open the door very wide. We open the door wide open to you coming in and you doing a work in us this morning. So would you pray with me and and then we'll we'll start. Lord, we come to you now and uh, Lord, we just want to say thank you. We've sung songs to you today that... Uh, declare who you are, your greatness, your majesty, and Lord, um, it's so true, and so we worship you today, and Lord, now we come, and, and, and we pray, Lord, as we open up your scriptures, we pray, Lord, that you would speak, Lord, we pray that you would do in us a work, um, we pray that this morning we'd be able to, even just for um, a few moments, just be able to lay aside maybe the burdens that we came in with, or maybe the joys, or whatever it would be, but we pray that we'd be able to really focus on the message that you have for us. And so, Lord, we ask you, would you speak to us? And so maybe to say to the Lord, Lord, I open the door wide open to my heart, to you, and I pray that you would do a work. So go ahead and say, have some sort of a conversation like that with the Lord right now. Go ahead. Lord, I thank you that your word says, Psalm 86 says, you are forgiving and good, O Lord. And what do you do? You are, who are you? You are abounding in love to all who would call on you. And so, Lord, that's what we do this morning. We call on you in faith. And Lord, with great expectation, um, we know that you'll speak and that you'll do great things in us. And so we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, let me ask you, Let me ask you a question this morning to start us off. If you could name the things in your life, if you could name the things in your life that you, could, you would say they get in the way, that they, they damper your affection for Jesus Christ, what would you name? What would be the things that you would list off? What are the things that as you pursue Christ, you might even say, these things are frustrating to me. I mean, there are times where I'm going through life and I'm, I'm walking with God and it's, it's going well, but then there are times where this just kind of creeps in and it frustrates me. What are those things, if you were to dig down deep, These are the things that if you're not careful, either from time to time, kind of occasionally, or very consistently, they rob you of having an incredible relationship with Jesus Christ. The kind of relationship that we all long for. The kind of relationship where you open God's word and and, and it's just like, wow, this was made for me today. And you're connecting with God. You're sensing his leadings. The kind of relationship where the voice of God is very clear to you. The kind of relationship where you're just kind of overflowing. You look at your life and you say, wow, I'm seeing fruit in my life. God is doing things in my life. This morning, we're going to talk about those things that get in the way. 
those things that get in the way of us walking with Jesus Christ and experiencing the fullness of life that he intended that we would. You know, you might be here today and you would say, I have yet to begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm just seeking this, this thing out. Or maybe you're here today and you would say, I'm a new believer. And maybe you've just come to know the Lord in the last couple of weeks even. And you say, wow, this is all new to me. Or maybe you would say, but I've been walking with the Lord for years, years and years. Regardless of when you came to know Christ, I think that we would all agree that there's a constant battle that is raging for the affections of our hearts. We see this struggle not only in our own lives, we see it throughout history. In the Old Testament, the, the practice of idolatry was very, very common. When you think of idolatry, you might think of like a statue or an, an image representing a god. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, the people, we find that they built an altar. And they built this, this altar and this idol in the, in the form of a, of a calf. And what did they do? They bowed down to it as though it was a god. Now, these people were once worshipers of the one true God, but they got distracted. They got pulled away, and they began to seek an idol for things that only the one true God could provide them. We see other examples in the scriptures. 1 Kings chapter 1, or chapter 11, it says that Solomon, as Solomon grew older, an incredibly wise man, as Solomon grew older, it says that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. The chapter goes on to say that Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. Solomon, we know, he went on to build physical idols to pagan gods, the gods of Moab and Molech. Today in our world, all around the world, the, the worship of idols is, is very common. Christina spent a summer in Thailand and she was telling me this week of, about the different idols that she saw when she was there and, and she, she told me about this one, it's called the Reclining Buddha. It's, this thing is huge, it's 46 feet long and what people do is this, they go up to it and, and this idol, it's a created image that receives worship and affection that only God deserves. Rob and Melody Adams uh, are two of our missionaries, and they're missionaries in, in India. India is a place that's filled with thousands and, and thousands of idols. Earlier this week, Mel and, and, uh, and Rob put together a, a short video for us. You know, I, Rob just kind of went around with his iPhone, and, and he wanted to give us a picture of what idolatry looks like in India, because that's the topic that we're going to unpack this morning in Colossians chapter 3. So, Give your attention to the screens and, and take a look at this short video. Good morning. My name is Robert and this is my lovely wife Melody. And we're Brookside missionaries here in India. We work with Hindu college students and young professionals. We understand you guys are studying the book of Colossians in a series called Equations. Jeff asked us if we would show you a little bit about the reality of life in India. So today we're going to show you some of the idols. Idols aren't only in temples, but in people's homes, places of business, and even at McDonald's and Pizza Hut. In the mornings, Hindu people will have a puja, or a worship time, where they'll ring a bell to wake up their idols, they'll feed them food and give them a bath, and then at night they cover them with a cloth to put them to sleep. They treat them just like they're living things. We're here at the Lakshmi Narayan Birla Temple. This is one of the largest temple complexes in Delhi, and it's a place that all the tourists like to go. 
Here you can find all the different idols to all the different gods in India. In India, they worship over 330 million gods. This is Sai Baba, one of the Indian gods. Um, he was a man that lived a little over 100 years ago and did miracles and Indians even think he's a lot like Jesus. Um, one of, a lot of my close friends worship him. One of them, Tushar, his family, they took a pilgrimage to Sai Baba's holy place in India where his temple and his tomb is and they go there to worship him and seek his blessings. Rob and I really love India. We love our Indian friends. We love the culture here. It's a really warm and inviting place. But it really breaks our hearts and makes us sad to see how much they're in bondage to Ashish. We really appreciate Brookside. Thanks for all that you do for us. Thanks for all your prayers and all your support. Thanks. Now you might be thinking, okay, I understand that there are idols around the world, and I understand, okay, I understand, Jeff, that there are idols large and small in places like India. I understand that there are idols in places like Thailand, but I'm not in India, and I'm not in Thailand, or anywhere else around the world, right, where these things are. Yet the reality is this, idols actually are everywhere. Uh, they aren't at, at all foreign to any person in this room. You know, Melody said in that video, she said that it breaks our hearts to see people worship idols, it breaks our hearts to, to see them bowing down to these, these man-made things. You know, just imagine for a second, imagine Rob's friend that he mentioned. His friend worships this idol that, that you can hold in the palm of your hand. You can imagine how that, that breaks their hearts. You can imagine how that should break our hearts. They put their hope, they put their trust, they find their identity. They look for confidence, they look for blessing and assurance through this idol. It's tragic. Yet it's just as tragic right here in our, our own realm. When our hearts are taken captive by things that only God can fulfill. External, uh, traditional, idol worship. It happens in parts, of the world's, yeah, in, in parts of the world, yes. But internal, idol worship of the heart. Idols of the heart are everywhere in our culture, in our lives. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it says, The, Lord's, uh, the Lord says to the elders of Israel, these men have set up, or you could say that they've constructed, they've built, but then he goes on, maybe not what you think. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Tim Keller, an author that Pastor Steve mentioned last weekend, uh, said this in, the, in a book that he wrote called Counterfeit Gods. He wrote, we, uh, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. I think we can all identify idols in our culture, but I think we can also all identify idols in our own lives. It could be a person. It could be a, a relationship. It could be family or work or sport. These are the things that from time to time they compete with. They beg for our attention. They beg for, they compete for our love for God himself. Idols are everywhere. And they keep us from so much. You know, this is why I'm really excited to share this text with you this morning. I was telling our life group guys on Thursday night, I said, man, if this text really impacts our minds and our hearts, it has the power to really transform a lot of things. It has the power to hugely impact our walks with Jesus Christ. The message of today's text has the potential to give you freedom from things, things that might be very good things, but yet they're things that have robbed your heart 
from your true connection with Jesus Christ, what you were created for. You can think of it this way. If you knew that someone was robbing you, if you knew that someone was coming onto your personal property and maybe that started where they were just started to, to take things from your, from your, you know, your yard at night and, and that sort of thing, they were stealing from you, but eventually they got into your home and they continued to steal from you over a period of time and then eventually they got into your, they, they figured out your bank account and how to get into that and slowly they began to steal from you even your money. Now here's the deal, if that happened to any one of us, we would go to extremes to stop that person from stealing from us. Like a thief, that's exactly what idols of the heart do to us. They rob us of the good that God intended for us. One author defined an idol this way. I think this puts it so clearly. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. The Apostle Paul, the author of Colossians, where we're going this morning, he wasn't at all unfamiliar with the subject of idolatry. In Acts chapter 17, we find that, that Paul, he was walking through the city of Athens. I mean, imagine this. He's exploring the city, and, and, and he looks around, and the text says that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, these were the kind of idols that were, they were structure-like, they were statue-like. Idols where people bowed down and they worshipped them. They sought to get blessings in life from them. They made offerings to these images in hopes that those things would happen, in hopes that they would be blessed. Now, I mentioned what happened in, in Acts 17 because Paul's exposure and now his teaching on idolatry doesn't end with physical objects. And that's, you know, what he saw in the city of Athens. But when we get to the book of Colossians, what we find is Paul uses the exact same terms in the same level of urgency, even stronger, I think, in seriousness in the book of Colossians as he addresses idols of the heart. For many of the passages in this series, uh, we've been writing out an equation, uh, an equation that really summarizes the, the main point of the morning. And so our equation for this morning, it's a, it's a very simple one. My handwriting's not the best. Rob told me that left-handed people don't have good handwriting. I disagree with him, except for in my case. Right. Okay, so Jesus, here it is, simple equation for the morning. Jesus is greater than my idols. That's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. That Jesus is greater, that the things that I would say, you know what, my idols, the things that I would put before God, what we're going to find this morning is this. Those things that steal the affections of our heart for Jesus Christ, we're going to find, oh, Jesus, you are, you're so much greater than those idols. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We'll put the verses up on the screen as well. We're going to look at the first eight verses this morning, and then next weekend we're going to finish this particular section in chapter 3. Now know this before we go in. The first four verses, Paul sets the stage for the instruction that he's going to give us in verses 5 through 8. So 1 through 4 is kind of setting the stage for 5 through 8. Look with me at verse 1. It says, since then, Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ. Now, now Paul is making an assumption, an assumption here that's, that's very important to note. The assumption is that he's speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. Now this is important because if you're here this morning and you're on a spiritual journey, you'd say, and, and you have yet to, to come to know Christ, but you're seeking truth, one, I would commend you for that, but two, I would say to you, 
What you don't want to do is to look at the remainder of this passage that we'll look at as we go. You don't want to look at that and say this, if I do those things, then I'll be right with God. That would be a major mistake. Because we've learned throughout this book and throughout this series that there's, there's really nothing that we can muster up, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's no amount of good deeds in us that can win us favor with God. There's no way that we can kind of balance the scales and our good deeds can cancel the debt that we owe. It's not possible. Rather, Colossians 1.20, such great news. It says that we have peace with God through Christ, through Christ alone, his blood that was shed on the cross. Now, I say this, I take this little tangent because... You could see this section of Scripture as a set of rules that if you keep them, you earn favor with God. When what Paul is saying is that since then, since you are in Christ, since you already know Christ, it should be this, out of an overflow of who you are in Christ, your affection for Christ and how you'll desire Him, how you'll desire to live out this text, it'll flow from you, not as a duty, but as a desire. Look with me at verse 1, the rest of it. Since then you have been raised with Christ. He goes on, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, now Paul is pretty clear in this passage, isn't he? There's not a, not a lot of mystery here. If you're in Christ, what are you to do? You're supposed to set your heart on things above. And no, notice the word that he uses there. It's, it's heart. It's a core issue. It's central to who you are. We're doing some prayer together as a staff this week and kind of just going around the circle and, and Beth Jansen prayed for me and, and, and she's praying and all of a sudden she starts praying for my kids and she prayed for them. She said, oh, I pray that Jeff's kids, that, that Jeff and Christina would have kids that their hearts, and she just named them, that their hearts would be soft to Christ. And I thought to myself, wow, I can't think of a better prayer to pray over, uh, over our kids, right? That their hearts, that they would have a heart connection that's soft, that their hearts would be in tune with Christ. Uh, Paul describes a place where our hearts ought to be. It's where Christ dwells. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in that, I tell you, is your true God. Now Paul is, he's cutting right to the core. He's saying, I want you to set your hearts, I want you to set your affections on Christ. Now don't miss this, Paul's intention in this text is not simply behavior management. He's not going for just external surfacey kind of stuff. No, he's driving right to the heart. He's digging deep, knowing that if our hearts are transformed, our actions will surely follow. Now you could think of it this way. It's as though he's building, in a sense, in these first verses, he's building a platform, a foundation upon which a changed life can stand. A friend of mine was recently telling me uh, that they were remodeling this house for a couple, and, and uh, he was telling me that you know, their company got in there, and, and they knew they needed to do work in the upper rooms, and just a, a big, huge remodel. And he said, we started you know, pulling stuff off the walls, though, and we realized that there was a much greater problem. So we realized that there was a foundational problem, major thing to find, right, when you're remodeling a house. But there was no sense in doing any of the exterior, any of the fluff remodel until the foundation was fixed, until the core was fixed. So Paul, what does he do in this text? He digs deep. This is a perspective-changing verse. That's why it has so much power. Verse 2, he goes on. 
Set your minds, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, I struggle with this, just being honest. There is a tendency in me, and I think in all of us, to get so dialed into the demands, to the day-to-day activities, to the day-to-day worries of life, that it can be a distraction from setting my mind consistently on things above, on Christ. Heart idolatry takes place when the day-to-day activities and when the day-to-day worries crowd out the one who sustains life. Jesus proposed a solution to this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, very simply, he said, hey, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and if you do that, if you seek me first, all of these things, things that you're worrying about and toiling, all of these things will be given to you as well, but what, do what? Seek me first. Verse 3, Paul stresses the reason why our orientation should be on things above. Look with me at verse 3. He says, for you died, and your life, what is it? It is now hidden with Christ in God. Our middle school ministry recently had a baptism service a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday, and it's so neat to just hear these junior high or middle school students that are pursuing Christ, right? And to hear their stories about how they came to faith in the Lord, and what I, I just love, just sitting there and listening to that, but here's the thing that, that, that stuck out to me as I'm working through this passage this week. Each person that Jack baptized, he said this. These are words straight out of Romans 6. He took the, the, the student like this. He said, you were buried with Christ in his death. Underwater they go. And then he said, you were raised to walk a new life. And what he was communicating with that message in Romans 6 is this. It's this, it's this picture That when you come to know Christ, what do you do? You are identifying with Christ. Your life is now hidden in Christ. You're you're walking in newness. Paul is making it clear. He's going right back to the gospel. That when you stand before God and the track record of your life says, guilty, as mine does. Paul's making it very clear that Christ steps in and says, righteous through faith in me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone, not just like special people, no, 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 therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new. The old is gone, it says the new has come. There's a transformation. Paul says your life is now hidden in Christ. Verse 4, this is the last verse that sets the stage for the rest of this text. And it's as though Paul, in a sense, he puts an exclamation point on it as he directs our attention to all of eternity. Verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, now notice that Paul said, When Christ, who is your life, He's not simply suggesting that Christ is a piece of life. He's not simply suggesting that Christ gets a portion of life. But he's saying, no, no, when Christ is your life, when he is over your life, when the things that you do, you do them directed toward him, he's saying, that's what I'm talking about. When Christ, who is your life. And when we get to verse 5, the foundation has been built. We, we know, okay, you've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden in him. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And now what Paul does in verse five is he gives his readers some instructions. And he says, okay, here's how you rid your life of idols that rob your heart's connection with Christ. Now we know this, that throughout Paul's writing, he does this all the time. 
He takes truth and he links truth like, okay, here's who you are in Christ. He links that truth and he, he puts it in direct co uh, uh, connection with application. And so he's answering the question, okay, in light of who I am in Christ, how then should we live? In light of who we are, how then should we live? He's going to answer that question. Here it is, verse 5. Strong words. He says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. John Calvin wrote this. He wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And Paul lists a few. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And Paul's language here, it's, it's not subtle at all. He's not beating around the bush. No, Paul, <clears throat> very pointedly, he's saying, what are you supposed to do? Put it to death. That's strong. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put it to death. He's fully aware of this, that our actions will flow from our allegiance, right? Our hearts will flow our actions, the things, that, the things that we do will ultimately be a result of what's true of us inside. You know, we live in a culture where immorality is rampant. Pornography alone is impacting our society as a whole. But these glaring things, they're, they're not the only things that grab our hearts, are they? One writer put it this way. Idolatry might not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institute, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Christina has become friends with this gal at the gym, and, and she's a phenomenal runner. I mean, a phenomenal runner. And, um, and so they've you know, got this friendship, and, and it's been hard, though, to watch this gal go through some of the events that she has been in, in her life. This gal is, is, is so in love with exercise. Exercise is a very good thing, but it's become too much, right? It's become, become consuming. It's so much so that her husband has now said to her, you know what, enough is enough, I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from this marriage. It's, it's out of whack. Idols rob the heart of affection that only God deserves. Do you remember the picture that we got of Jesus earlier in the book of Colossians? This is a reminder of why our affection goes to Christ alone. Here it is. Let me just read this and just let me just read this over you. It's Colossians 1:15. It says he is the image of the invisible God. Why is he worthy of our worship? Why is he worthy of everything? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. In him all things they, they hold together, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. You know, when we're caught up in who Jesus is, uh, when we remind ourselves of who he is and who we are in Christ, our idols, actually, they seem silly. I'll be honest with you, as I was studying this text and so immersed in this text this week, some of the things in my life that compete, I just started to go, that seems silly, almost, in comparison to Christ. You, know, you might struggle, for instance, with the idol of security. And so you worry about whether or not you're going to be okay. 
But when you stop for a minute and you, you think about it and you reflect on who Christ is and who you are in Christ, it forces that idol into its right perspective. Paul goes on. Look at me at verse 6. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. I mean, very simply, he's saying, hey, you used to live for things other than Christ, but he's beckoning us back out of love for for those that would hear it, out of love for the, the people that would receive it right then. He's saying, hey, don't be distracted. Don't let an idol of the heart creep in. You used to walk in those ways in the life you once lived. Look at me at verse 8. It says, but now, strong words again, here's the direction, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now notice, notice the first two words there. He says, but now. He's going back to it again. This is key. If you are in Christ, if Christ has changed you, if you'd say that this morning, The thief that enters the property of your life does not need to continue to do so if you are in Christ. Remember this. Remember that 2 Corinthians 5.17? Old gone. What has the new done? It's come. The new has come. So I think we asked the question this morning, how do we identify the idols of our heart? Ask yourself this question. I think it'll point it out to you. Here it is. What do I long for trust or fear now let me give you some examples if i fear not having enough i might idolize money because money promises that i'll have security if i long to not be single i might idolize marriage because then i'll finally be in a relationship if i trust that my kids will turn out exactly the way that I hope that they will and that I'm planning that they will because I'm doing everything as I, I can as a parent, I might idolize control. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the, the Rocky movies? Remember the Rocky movies with Sylvester Stallone? You know what I'm talking about? Can you feel it? Feels good, doesn't it? Guys, you can stand if you want, do whatever, run around. Now, if you haven't seen these movies, they're great for date night, Valentine's Day. Uh, perfect. Perfect for that. It's a great series. Now, now here, here's what I, I want to say about this. In, in Rocky 1, kind of go back to that for a moment, Rocky's fighting Apollo Creed. Remember this moment? And Rocky's talking to his love. I'm not sure if they were married yet at that point. I don't remember. But he's talking to his love, Adrian. And he says to Adrian, he says, if I can just go the distance against this unbeatable Apollo Creed, if I can just go the distance and when the final bell rings, no matter what shape I'm in, if I'm still standing, then I'll know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. That's your question. What would you say defines you? If you idolize achievement, you think to yourself, if this, then. If I get that, if I get that promotion, then I'll finally be there. If I can graduate with honors, oh, then I will have arrived. If you idolize achievement, remind yourself this morning of what Christ has already achieved on your behalf, of what it means for you to have relationship with him. It's so interesting how scripture just supports scripture and 
man, I just happened to come across this this week. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, what does he do? He lists out all of these credentials that he had. These things that he would say, honestly, they were probably idols to him. These things that were his identity. They talked about who he was as a person. And what does he say? This is after Paul comes to know Christ. He uses very strong language. I won't say it as strongly as he did. He says, though, compared to all of these things, all of this list of credentials, he says they're rubbish. They're like garbage. Complete waste compared to Christ. This morning, we're going to end our service a little different. And, uh, and here's why we're going to do it. Because there's such power in naming our idols. And getting it very clear in our minds, okay, this is the thing that I struggle with. This is the thing that competes for my walk and my affections for Christ. Maybe occasionally, maybe all the time. And in a form of repenting, and in a form of declaring, okay, Jesus, you are greater than this thing. So this morning, you see these chalkboards on both sides of the stage Um, What we're going to do is I'm going to pray here in a minute and then I'm going to ask you to come forward and I want to give you an opportunity this morning to write on the chalkboard to write out your own equation. Jesus is greater than and then you can fill in the blank and you probably know what you'll write down. Jesus is greater. Maybe you'd put achievement. Maybe you'd put Jesus is greater than money. Maybe you'd say, you know the longings of your heart. Jesus is greater than that relationship. He will provide for me in a way that thing never will. Jesus is greater than my plan. Jesus is greater than security. Jesus is greater than recognition that I could receive. Jesus is greater than the approval of the friends that I long to have. Jesus is greater than an addiction. Jesus, maybe for you, you would say, Jesus, you know what? You are greater than my schedule because I am a slave to my schedule. Jesus, you are greater than social media. Whatever it is for you, it's that stuff that from time to time, or very often you would say, it competes, it captures your affection, the affections of your heart, a place that only God should have. You know, parents, I want to encourage you, there's lots of kids, it's a holiday weekend, lots of kids in the service. Go ahead, bring your child with you. Then get in the car later and just say, hey, here's what I wrote, and and here's why I wrote it. Um, those boards look like, you know, there's a lot on them, but there's plenty of room. Feel free to erase if you have to, whatever. The, The point is this, It's that we're declaring it. It's that we're saying, okay, this is the thing that captures my affection. And today what I'm saying, Lord, is, Lord, I want to turn from that. Lord, I want to recognize. And there is huge power, I'm telling you, in recognizing what it is. So here's what I'm going to write on the board. Here's, Here's my issue. I'll go first. Jesus is greater than the thing that I struggle with, one of the idols in my life. Here it is. People's approval. There are times in my life when I forget about who's the most important audience. There are times in my life, frankly, when I get things a little mixed up and I want the applause of people. Just speaking honestly. There are times in my life when I have to remind myself that the applause of man is not lasting. There are times when I have to speak truth into myself and say, here's who you are in Christ. Here's who you are. This is your identity. This is where your worth comes in. What is it for you? What would you say? I love this. The word repent means this. The word repent means that you turn. It means to turn away from something. 
And so this morning, in just a very visual demonstration, we're going to write this out. Jesus, you are greater than, fill in the blank. What is it for you that competes? And then turn and walk away and say, and, and imagine this this week. Imagine later on this week you being able to say, when that thing comes up, when that idol begs for your attention and your affection, things that, and it says, oh, I can satisfy you in a way that God can't, and that's a lie. Imagine if you can say in that, that moment, no, no, I, I dealt with that. I'm dealing with that. I've come to the reality that Jesus Christ, he's the one that can satisfy in a way that no idol can satisfy. He satisfies the longings of our heart in a way that nothing else can. And so let me pray for us and, and, um, and then just we'll come forward and play some music and, and let's just do business with God. Let's have a defining moment with, with the Lord today. So yeah, would you pray with me? And we'll see. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Um, and Lord, we just want to cry out as a people today. And, and Lord, we want to say that you are so good. I, I can't help but think back to that Colossians, the beginning of that, 115, all those descriptors of who you are. And so, Lord, we want to just declare, Jesus, you are greater than whatever it is. And Lord, I thank you for the power that it's been in my own life just to look very closely at my own heart and say, okay, Jesus, you are greater than, and for me to be able to name it and to deal with it. And so, Lord, I pray that now, Lord, we would have some holy moments in this room. Lord, I pray that there'd be defining moments. Lord, I pray that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week, we look back and we're able to say, I'm dealing with that. I declared it, I turned, I repented, I walked away. So Lord, now we love you, we want to say, and we want to pray that you would just do a a powerful work in the most important place in our hearts today. So we pray in Christ's name, amen.